So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, if you were here two weeks ago, you know that we started this chapter two weeks ago. Uh, we saw how uh, we're in the middle of looking at David's, uh, the, the reign of King David through the, the book of 2 Samuel. And we saw how David, uh, several weeks ago, how David came uh, to Jerusalem and how Jerusalem became the center of Israel of political power, you might say. And then uh, last week we saw that David, or two weeks ago, that David desired not just for Jerusalem to be the center of some kind of human power, but actually the center of worship. And so he sought to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, to Jerusalem. The Ark was uh, a gift from God. It was designed, it was this, this box designed to represent to God's people God's reign, that God was king. It was called his throne. It was called his footstool, like a king would put his feet up on a stool to show that he was above everyone else. The, the Ark of God was called a footstool, and so it represented God's reign as the king. Uh, it represented God's mercy. It was called the mercy seat. Uh, God would come down uh, once a year at the Day of Atonement and would, the priest would come and offer a sacrifice for the sins of all the people, the sins of himself first and then the sins of the people, and God would forgive their sins. He would accept the atonement for their sins. So it, was, it represented uh, the mercy of God, and it also represented the Word of God. Inside the ark was contained the the Ten Commandments written on the tablet that Moses had received from God. It also contained the manna, uh, a jar of manna that God had fed the people by. It was where God would come and meet with Moses. And so it represented God's reign, God's mercy, and God's word. And so as, as Christians, now looking back on it, we see, oh, God's reign, so the kingship of God God's mercy, so the priesthood of God. God's word, so the, the prophetic word of God. Prophet, priest, and king. Some of you may hear that and think, oh, isn't that, aren't those the three offices of Jesus? And they are. And so the ark, even the ark was meant to point people to Christ, to the Son of God. And if you remember, so David wanted to bring this ark back to the people. It had been... Uh, being stored or kept in a, one particular man's home, uh, and David was bringing it back, and he built this beautiful uh, cart to bring it back on. But, uh, but the cart wasn't the way that God had intended for his ark to be carried. Uh, the ark wasn't a burden for oxen to bear. The ark was a burden for God's people to bear. Uh, the priests were supposed to carry the ark. They weren't supposed to touch it even. They, they would carry it on poles. And so uh, you remember that things didn't go as planned, even as wonderful as the worship service seemed, even as exciting as everything was, it, it just sort of it, it seemed to end badly. Well, well, let's just read the whole chapter. We'll just read the whole chapter, forget the sum up. You'll get the picture as we read it all. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 2 Samuel chapter 6. So David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, about 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart 
and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill, the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the, brother, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants' female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make Mary before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So if you're interested in reviewing the first 11 verses, those were the portion that we preached on 
two weeks ago. I would encourage you to uh, go and listen to that sermon if you would like. But we will simply sort of summarize how things ended there. Uh, David was angry, if you recall, which uh, is pretty much an inappropriate response to God. Uh, for David to be angry at God for his holiness. Um, now, if David is angry at himself, then it, maybe it's an appropriate anger. Maybe David's anger is more of a, uh, Uzzah is dead because I'm king. I mean, Uzzah was only doing what the king told him to do, uh, and it really uh, falls on the king uh, what has happened to the people. Those in authority, God holds responsible for those over whom they have authority. That's still, that's true today, even in the church, that the elders, your elders here at Hope of Christ, are held responsible for your uh, growth in faith. That's a, that's a weighty thing. And so it could be that David was angry about that. But we were also told, as we read, David was afraid. And that is the beginning of appropriateness. It's appropriate to approach God with a certain amount of fear, of reverence, of awe. God throughout Scripture reminds us over and over, I am not like you. I don't say one thing and then change my mind. I am nothing like you. Uh, the only place in Scripture that God is called something uh, with the repetitive three times, he's never called love, love, love. He's never called good, good, good. He's never called merciful, merciful, merciful. God is called holy, holy, holy. There's not a person in the Old Testament who meets God who isn't shaken by God's holiness. It is right in one sense for David to be afraid of God. But his fear drives him not to his knees as we see most in the Old Testament, but drives him to push God away. Who... Can, who can have God in his presence? And so he pushes God away. He doesn't want him in Jerusalem. He doesn't want the ark that represents the presence of God to be anywhere near him. So he sends it away. But he doesn't send it. Do you notice he doesn't send it to like an unmarked cave? He doesn't send it to a giant warehouse with other boxes and just send it down the aisle and just never know where it ends up uh, he sends it to a person's house. Doesn't that seem a little strange? He's like, who can abide the presence of God? That guy over there, he can. That just seems, odd. oh, people are going to die. Let's have that guy die. Uh, it's a Gittite, which means uh, he was actually a, a Philistine by birth. Gittite means he was from Gath. Maybe that was what David was thinking. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure what he was thinking. It's just, it's odd that he sends the ark to a foreigner's house and yet far from bringing pain and misfortune on this man's house, this foreigner's house, this foreigner's household is blessed, is blessed by the presence of God. For three months, David is left thinking about these things, that a man died because of his instructions and they come to him, people come to him and say, hey, that guy you put the ark in his 
I don't know, living room, family? I don't know where you put the ark when you get it. It's a sofa table? I don't know. But God is blessing him. And so today's passage just sort of looks at, okay, so what is bringing God back, bringing God into to the central place of Israel, to the central place of God's people, what does bringing God back look like uh, take two? And so we see David's attitudes and actions in this section. There is a sense that David begins to understand that although God is not safe, God is good. And there's no safer place to be than in the presence of the holy God when he has called you by his name. And it may be frightening, but it is also comforting. And so David seeks the Lord. He goes, this time, with priests and poles instead of oxen and carts. This time he goes with a bit of humility. There's no emphasis on the great crowds or the number of men that accompanied him. There's no mention of the fanfare, of the the numbers and types of instruments. There's more humility in this. David brings uh, the Kohathites, the Levites, who were in charge of carrying the ark this time. And they bring the poles, and they're careful not to touch the ark. And can you imagine the somewhat fear and trepidation by which this next service began. Everyone remembers three months ago how the service ended, and so now we're going to do this again. And so the priests lift the ark onto their shoulders, and they take one step, and they take two steps, and nothing happens, and they take three steps and four, and five, and six. And does everyone just let out? Had they all collectively been holding their breath? And so before they even take a seventh step, David calls for the sacrifice of an oxen and a fattened animal. The ox was a common sacrifice for a sacrifice of atonement, a burnt offering, a sacrifice seeking the mercy of God on behalf of the people of God. Later, there are more sacrifices described in Jerusalem, and they're specifically called burnt offerings. Burnt offerings were sin offerings and peace offerings, offerings rejoicing that By God's mercy, there is now peace available between us and a holy God. Only after those first sacrifices do the people begin to celebrate. There's an appropriateness to this worship, isn't there? There's a a sense of humility first. Who am I to come into God's presence? And so sacrifices are made. And then there's celebration. David is dressed simply. He doesn't come in his royal robes. He doesn't come, you know, with all the attention on him. He just comes in a simple linen ephod. Uh, The 
basically the undergarment for the priests. It was just this simple robe that he wore. Our book of church order, it's the Presbyterian book that kind of gives us direction on how to govern the church, but also there's a section that gives direction on uh, what worship should be like. And I love there's a passage in the book of church order that refers to the, the public worship of God. It says, from its beginning to its end, a service of public worship should be characterized by that simplicity which is an evidence of sincerity and by that beauty and dignity which are a manifestation of holiness. The worship of God should have both a simplicity about it that indicates a sincerity of the offering, but there should be a beauty and a dignity about it that points to the holiness of God, that that we don't just come nonchalantly into the presence of God. Here we see David coming in fear, in humility, in contrition, with thanksgiving, and with joy. Joy. David's delight in the Lord is visible and palpable and contagious. He dances before the Lord with such joy. Notice what's missing from the second time of worship than from the that was there during the first time of worship. And I've pointed out some of it already, but what's missing, at least from the description, is the focus on the people. What's missing is the focus on circumstances, things that make for fanfare and excitement. There's no mention of 30,000 men joined David, but we're told that all of Israel, but there's no, there's no focus on who's there other than that God is there. There's no numbering of the people. There's no description of all the instruments, though we know that there are instruments. And the first time, all the focus is on the people and on the instruments and on the fanfare. And the second time, the focus is all Godward. Were there instruments? Of course there were instruments. David was dancing. We're told that there were horns blasting. The people were shouting and singing. All the house of Israel is mentioned, but we don't get numbers because the focus isn't on the numbers. The focus isn't on the circumstances. The focus is on God. The only circumstance mentioned is the simplicity of David's robes and the blessings that David gives, tangible blessings to all of the households of Israel. What is present this time that was absent last time is this God-centered, God-focused worship. Six steps and then two sacrifices. Dancing before the Lord. Burnt offerings, peace offerings offered before the Lord. You can read in the second half of chapter 6 all of the emphasis of before the Lord, in the presence of the Lord. Now maybe some of you are hoping I'm going to say something about David's dancing. In the, in the presence of the Lord. And I'll, so I'll try to do two things. I'll try to be brief, and I'll try to offend everyone. So first of all, if you're looking at this and thinking, aha, dancing, corporate worship, we should dance more. Well, <clears throat> 
that just makes every Presbyterian, at least true, true blue Presbyterian, like the closest we get to dancing is we shake a little when people dance around us because we're nervous. So, uh, but this isn't corporate worship. This isn't temple or tabernacle worship. This isn't worship designed uh, for, that's led by the priests. This is a moment of special occasion. And so you can't look at this passage and say, this tells us we should have a ribbons ministry at Hope of Christ. You know, the whole, I would join that. I love those ribbons. I think that's fantastic. I wouldn't do it in public worship, though. That would be like a Saturday activity, like this was. This was like, although that would have been Sabbath. Anyway. But this passage does tell us that David was so moved by the kindness and mercy and goodness of God that he couldn't not dance. And he didn't care who saw. Yeah, it wasn't in public worship, but it was very public. David's delight and joy over God was seen by everyone, lovers and haters alike. When was the last time you were moved to uncontrollable, exuberant joy that erupted in such a way that your spouse was worried about decorum? I will confess to you that for me, the last time that happened was watching a football game. I can watch a football game and it can elicit from my emotions just outbursts of joy and rapture and outbursts of misery and lament. And this is not a sermon against football. Why does the gospel not even come close to that in my heart? Why can I look at a team playing a game? I'm not even there. I'm watching it on a screen. They, my voice doesn't add a wit to their sense of 12th man. And yet I'm screaming, I'm joyous. When is the last time I watched the gospel in action in my child? A moment of faith? Did I erupt in joy? What in my children elicits from me rapturous joy? Is it moments of repentance? Is it small moments of doing something for someone else without anything expected in return? Or do my children think that the only time I'm going to act like that is if they hit the ball off the tee and it goes past their foot? Is that when they hear their father's joy and unconditional love? Is it completely conditional on what they do? Jacob asked me because it was an odd season for all of us, especially when Cleveland actually makes it to the first round of the playoffs 
And of course, it takes a pandemic to get Cleveland in the playoffs. But Jacob asked me, because they won the first game, and Jacob said, what would you do if they ever win the Super Bowl? And I thought a minute, and I said, you know what, Jacob? I would probably cry, and I can't tell you how embarrassed I am to realize that. Not embarrassed because it's not a manly thing. But just convicted that, really? I don't weep over my sin. I don't weep over the kindness of God. I weep over a football game. That's not going to happen before the rapture anyway. David dances before the Lord, and he doesn't care that it's in the presence of everyone. He is moved by the holiness and the mercy of God, and he can't help. He can't let it, he can't but let it be public. When we take this whole passage together, we realize that a right heart is not going to correct wrong actions. We can't look at Uzzah and say his heart was in the right place, and so we just turn a blind eye to the wrong actions. That's not... And we look at other passages in Scripture, too. Even uh, when Jesus was talking to the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, and she says, well, let's talk worship. We worship here. You say you have to worship there. Who's right? And Jesus doesn't back off from that. He actually answers her. He says, we worship according to the truth. You do not. He answers her. Just a sincerity in worship doesn't make Everything in worship acceptable. That's why we won't have a ribbons ministry during worship. But just as having a right heart doesn't fix wrong actions, I will tell you the opposite is true, though. Having a wrong heart will ruin right actions. Having a wrong attitude toward worship means it's not worship. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul, just as he's getting ready to give instructions that we will read later today for communion, he says to the Corinthians, he says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So their attitude could actually change the Lord's Supper into not the Lord's Supper. A wrong attitude can make the right action just as wrong. You know, in reading through the Old Testament, when you get to Amos, there's a section where, where God says, I hate your sacrifices. The very sacrifices that God commanded, he despised now because they came with the wrong heart to manipulate God, to move God, to get things from God. They didn't come with repentance or thanksgiving. Maybe you're thinking this doesn't seem right or fair, but there are other areas of our lives that are similar to this, where uh, something positive doesn't undo the negative, but something negative can ruin a positive. So, uh, for example... It's like health ratings at restaurants. 
Like if you don't like the food at a restaurant, does it really matter that they got an A on their health rating? No. A, a good grade on their health rating is still going to be a good grade on yucky food. I mean, who cares? Who cares how clean their utensils are? I don't like it. If there was a great big macaroni and cheese chain here that only served mac and cheese and ice cream for dessert, I'm positive that many of you would love that. I wouldn't care how clean their utensils were. I just would not eat there. Nothing about it would appeal to me. Now, on the flip side, it really doesn't matter how good food is at a restaurant. If you walk in and see a D in the frame, and you remember, like, just signing up for it gets you three points, it doesn't matter how good that food is, you're not going to eat there today. In fact, there's a restaurant downtown. I'm not going to name it because we're being recorded and I don't want to be liable for anything. There's a restaurant downtown that I really like, but they got a bad rating. And so my wife refuses to eat there now. And so now I don't get to eat there. Okay, they got a bad rating twice. <laughs> anyway, but see, that's my point. doesn't matter how good the food is. This bad rating ruins everything. An unhealthy heart in approaching God will always lead to absence. An unhealthy heart in coming to worship will always lead to absence. It'll start with just a mental absence. You just show up. You're showing up and thinking, there, I've worshipped God. And then that mental absence will soon develop into spiritual absence. You'll show up and even be angry that you're even here. And it'll eventually result in physical absence. Our heart toward worship matters. This is what we see in Michal, her actions and attitudes. David brought the Ark of Jerusalem, the Ark back to Jerusalem. He does it with respect and honor and dignity, but he also does it with full emotional buy-in. He has the Ark carried has a tent prepared to receive it, starts the journey with sacrifices, ends the journey with sacrifices. When it's over, he has gifts to bless everyone who happens to come out for this celebration. Throughout the middle of it, he's dancing with joy before the Lord. All of Israel is present. All of Israel is pleased. Well, maybe not all of Israel. Verse 16, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Verse 20, David returned to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. So it's interesting, Michal, David's first wife, is referred to three times in this passage as Michal, the daughter of Saul. Michal's words are where most of us get this idea that David danced naked in the streets. Uh, or at least maybe the ephod was a little too loose-fitting when he was twirling. Uh, now, when it comes to accuracy of details, are you going to look to the description of an unbiased historical writer or a spurned, angry 
spouse. I think authors and scholars who, who lead us in this direction are not honest about the kinds of fights they have with their spouses. Can any of you honestly say that when you have a fight, argument, disagreement, spat, whatever you want to call it, with your spouse, you always fight clean? You always, you don't exaggerate. You never use the, you never, you always. You're always very, I think I hear what you're saying, and let me just repeat back to you what you've said to make sure that I understand it. No, we don't do that. We use hyperbole, sarcasm, absolutes. We use pasts. The Garth Brooks song, We Bury the Hatchet, but leave the handle sticking out. I mean, you don't have to be, you don't have to be a very dramatic person to hear the sarcasm dripping from McCall's words. My, how the king of Israel has honored himself today. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants. It's not even just your servants, David. It was your servants, female servants. Those, even the, you're like the, one of the most vulgar, shameless fellows of town. There's just, there's animosity, there's anger. There's something more than just embarrassment going on here. David's response is in part proper. I'd say part of it, though, is, although accurate, unnecessary. But it does give us insight into David and McCall's relationship. Was it necessary for David to remind McCall that, that David was chosen over her father and over her father's household? I'm pretty sure she knew that. You might say, well, but it's just, he's just being honest. He's just being true. Okay. Is everything honest and true necessary? You know, when you read the Old Testament, remember, these are real people in real relationships struggling with real sins and hurts. I mean, David does say it was before the Lord. This is the proper part of his response. It was before the Lord. I celebrate before the Lord, and I will make myself more contemptible than this. And I'm willing to be abased in your eyes, but those servants that you despise almost as much as you despise me, they will, they will hold me in honor simply for worshiping God. And while the focus of this passage is on bringing the ark of God back. That's the central focus here. Uh, the author doesn't ignore the relationship between David and Michal, and so we shouldn't ignore it. You can read Michal's entire story. It starts way back in 1 Samuel. She's a young woman, and we're told she fell in love with David. And her father decides to exploit that. He uses her love for David in an attempt to get David killed by the Philistines. It doesn't work. And so then he gives his daughter to David. And she probably thinks, 
This is it. It's a dream come true. She's so committed to David at one point that she lies to Saul's uh, guards and soldiers in order to hide and protect David. And then David goes on the run without her. You might say, well, that's not really a place for women, but other women were on the run with David, other households. In fact, David took on other wives who were on the run with him, but never Michal. Eventually, her father, again, to despite, in order to spite David, gives Michal to another man in marriage. But this man actually seems to care for Michal. They actually seem to have a decent life together. But then when David does come back, or he's about to come back to be uh, appointed king of all Israel, he says, well, bring me Michal, my wife. And it's not out of a love for her. He has a minimum of six wives at that point. And now it's his turn to just use McCall as a, as a political pawn. Takes her from the man that she loves and who loves her, David, who is the man she once loved. Just uses her. Now, I'm not saying that McCall is off scot-free just because she suffered. I mean, David suffered, Ruth and Naomi suffered, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, they all suffered. But I am asking, do you at least have a tear for McCall in this? Do you have any sense of, man, she has had a raw deal her whole life? And empathizing with people and understanding isn't saying, oh, yeah, that's, your response to it is exactly right but saying, I understand that response. You've had a really awful life. I'm very sorry. Now, as I said, uh, the passage isn't about McCall's mistreatment, but it's here. It's not hidden. And many scholars read the closing sentence as if it's like the final judgment from God on McCall. And it might be. But it could be the final point of how mistreated she was. That David, from that day on, never did treat her as even one of his wives. She never had a child all her life. Now, I want to return to an important point of all of chapter 6 here, the reality that we learn throughout Scripture and through life and that is highlighted here. You cannot add something good to something bad, and that's going to make it good. You can't add good intentions to bad practices in worship, and that's going to fix it all. And yes, this is where all the young boys will start paying attention because how do we not talk about this without mentioning brownies or poop? You can't, you can't add to a pile of something that your dog makes in the backyard and make that good. Like You can't sprinkle Montreal steak seasoning, which is really me saying a lot, because I think 
that stuff might cure cancer if you rubbed it in just right. I think that stuff's amazing. But I would not eat something out of the backyard just because you sprinkled Montreal steak seasoning on it. I'd be like, no, I do like Montreal steak seasoning. That's good, but no, we're going to leave that alone. No, we know the opposite is true. Something bad can actually ruin something good. You know, the whole point of the brownies, add a little bit of that something from the backyard to the tray of brownies. It doesn't matter what percentage it is. If you tell me there's, you know, 6% dog poop in your brownies, I'm not eating them. I'm not, I mean, I'm not trying to be rude. I just don't, I'm not as hungry as I thought I was. A little bit of death and the pot, the garment, the person is unclean, according to the Old Testament. That clean person doesn't touch the dead person, and they're like, oh, I'm alive. Thanks for cleaning me up here. No, that's not how it works. The filth causes the clean to become unclean. A little bit of leprosy, and the house is unlivable. The point is made by Haggai in Haggai 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches it with bread or stew or wine or oil or any other food, does that food become holy? And the priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, well, what if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of those things? Do those things become unclean? And the priest said, "Uh, yeah, it does become unclean. He says, so it is with these people of God. With this nation before me, declares the Lord, so with every work of their hands and what they offer, it is unclean. Because their hearts weren't right. Their hearts weren't in it. Everything they offered was unclean. This is true all throughout Scripture. There are no exceptions but one. The Son of God comes into the world and Everything he touches becomes clean. He touches lepers, and he doesn't become unclean. They become clean. He touches the dead. They don't become, he doesn't absorb uncleanness. They become so clean that they are revived. All of this because Christ did become unclean, because at the cross, he actually does absorb our uncleanness. But it's a two-way flow. He takes on our uncleanness so that We, in Christ, are made clean. That is a truth worth dancing over. Let's pray. Jesus, you have made us clean. We know in life that it's not even possible. I can't breathe on a person with a cold and make them well but you can. You can breathe life onto us, into us, and not just make us well, but make us alive. Make us clean. Make us righteous. Make us holy. Jesus, would you continue to cleanse us? Would you give us hearts for worship that would seek to approach you with fear, with amazement, with joy. 
in our private lives, would you give us a joy over Christ and what he has done that is visible to our families, to our neighbors, to our communities. We thank you, Jesus, for your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen.